Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We will read verses 1 through 17. The New Testament reading will be Romans 7, 1 through 8, 4. Quite a bit of scripture reading this morning. The sermon itself will be on the uses of God's moral law. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, and then Romans 7, 1 8 through 8, 4. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Romans 7, 1 through 8, 4. Romans 7, 1. Paul, writing to the church in Rome. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding upon a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not, for I do, not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now... If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. We've taken a little hiatus from our study of the Ten Commandments to talk about the uses of God's moral law. In the previous sermon I said, It is one thing to know what God's law is, it is another thing to know how it is to be used. And I hope that you would agree with me, brothers and sisters, that if we love God's law, we should be concerned to both know what it is, and also we should be concerned to know how it is to be used. I've said that many have done great damage to themselves and to others, not so much because they have failed to understand what God's law requires and forbids, but because they have misused God's law. One of the most obvious and well-known examples of this is legalism. The legalist might know what God's law is. They might have a correct understanding of what God's law requires and forbids. And yet they attempt to use God's law to obtain God's favor. They attempt to obey God's law thinking that through their obedience they will be justified before God. If only I were to worship God alone, avoid idolatry, revere God's name, and keep the Lord's Day Sabbath holy, etc., etc., then God will love me and accept me. That's how the legalist thinks. It's not that they have misunderstood what God's law is, what it requires or forbids. It's that they have used God's law inappropriately. They have gotten the use of God's law wrong. And it's a deadly error. 
Paul the Apostle corrects the error of legalism very clearly in his writings when he says things like this, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is Romans 3.20. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the law is not to be used to obtain Justification. It cannot be used in that way because the law, properly understood, is used by God to show us our sin. So do not try to use the law of God to obtain right standing before God or justification. And I suppose we could spend a long time talking about all the ways in which God's law has been misused in the history of the church up to this present day. I won't do that now. Instead, I wish to present the proper uses of God's law to you in a positive way. How is God's law to be used? Historically, the church has confessed that there are three uses of God's moral law. Civil, pedagogical, and normative. I'm not so concerned that you remember those terms. They're good terms. Memorize them if you're able. But I think it's more important that you know the concepts that those terms represent. In the previous sermon, I taught you about the civil use of the moral law. I attempted to show you that God uses His moral law to restrain evil in the world today. God, in His mercy, restrains evil in the hearts of men and women and in societies, in part by upholding and preserving His moral law. Yes, it is true, men and women will try to distort and suppress this law that is within them. Societies will try to ignore it and rebel against it. But I'm saying that God mercifully preserves His moral law and He uses it to restrain evil in the world, even to this present day. He does this even amongst those who do not have faith. He restrains evil in the world, even to this present day. And one of the ways that He does it is through preserving His moral law. We often wonder why the world is so wicked, but really we should marvel of the fact that it is not worse than it is. Why is it not worse? Answer, because God in His mercy restrains the wickedness of man, and the abiding presence of the moral law in the hearts of men and women is one of the things that God uses to restrain evil in the world. That should be very comforting to us, brothers and sisters, to remember that God is doing this. God in His providence is restraining wickedness in the world. He's upholding the natural order of things. And He is restraining wickedness in the world so that His purposes of redemption might be accomplished. Our God is sovereign over all. This should bring great comfort to the hearts of God's people. In this sermon, we will turn our attention to the two other uses of the moral law, the pedagogical and the normative. When we speak of the pedagogical use of God's moral law, we are referring to the way in which God uses His law to convict sinners of their sin and to drive them to Christ. A pedagogue is a strict teacher. Paul uses the Greek word for pedagogue to describe the law in Galatians 3, 24-25. English translations render that word in a variety of ways. Tutor, schoolmaster, or guardian. The point is this. The law is a strict teacher. The law is a tutor, a schoolmaster, a disciplinarian to those not in Christ. I wonder if you can picture an old school, strict school teacher. Do you know what I mean by old school? Some of you grew up under these, right? An old school, strict school teacher 
with a ruler or switch in their hand. Those days are long gone, aren't they? Uh, but what does, what does a strict teacher like this do? What does a pedagogue do with their student when they err or when they misbehave? They strike at the hand with that switch, don't they? Some of you are smiling because you probably experienced this uh, back in the day. A pedagogue strikes the student with their switch. A pedagogue disciplines. And the scriptures teach that this is one of the ways that the law of God functions. It's one of the uses of the law. The law is used by God to magnify sin. It makes us more aware of sin. It condemns sinners. It condemns those who are not in Christ, you see. Uh, That is one of the uses of the law that Paul highlighted in that passage that I read just a moment ago from Romans. If we consider this use of the law in terms of the history of salvation, so think of salvation history and all of the progress made from the time of Adam to the time of Christ, even to this present day. If we consider this use of the law in terms of the history of salvation and the various covenants that God has made with man, then it can be said that the law that God gave to Israel through Moses functioned in this pedagogical way to the extreme. Remember, Israel did not only have the moral law of God given to them. No, God also gave them civil laws and ceremonial laws. And I've said in previous sermons that the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel were in some ways very strict. They did not only restrain evil in Israel, um, nor did they merely promote justice within Israel, The civil laws that were given to Israel also punished violations of God's moral law in an unusually strict way. I've said before that this was because Israel was a holy nation. And here I am saying that what the Apostle Paul says, the law of Moses magnified sin. It was a pedagogue to old covenant Israel and to the nations that looked in upon them. But the civil and ceremonial laws of Israel had this function. They magnified sin, and this was to drive all nations to Jesus the Messiah. You see, as we look in upon the civil laws of Old Covenant Israel, really we're able to see just how sinful sin is. Really we're able to see in an extreme way, illustrated before us in Old Covenant Israel, why it is that we need a Messiah. The civil laws of Old Covenant Israel help us with this, the ceremonial laws too. But if we consider this pedagogical use of the law in terms of the order of salvation, and when we talk about the order of salvation, we're not talking about salvation history, but the way in which God brings His elect to faith in Christ and thus to salvation. You know, how does He, how does he do that? Well, we must acknowledge that God uses His moral law in this process. He uses His moral law to convict the world of sin. God uses His law to make sinners aware of their sin, of their guilt before Him, and of their need of a Savior. To put the matter differently, God saves sinners through His law and His gospel. Or to say it another way, God saves sinners through the proclamation of the gospel, but for the gospel to be understood and believed, the law must first condemn. Law and gospel Go together, brothers and sisters, don't they? What is the gospel except for the good news that God, by His grace, has made the forgiveness of sin and the hope of life available to man through the finished work of Christ to be received by faith alone? This is the good news. This is the gospel. But then we might ask, what is sin? What what is sin? We say, sin is any lack of conformity unto or violation of God's what? 
law. There it is. The gospel is that salvation is available to us. Forgiveness of sin is available to us. But what is sin? Sin is when we fail to conform to God's law or when we actively violate God's law. You see, the law must be understood if we are to understand that we are sinners in need of God's saving grace. That is the point. It is the moral law of God that makes sinners aware of their sin. God's law is the standard. And when the Holy Spirit of God draws sinners to salvation through faith in Christ, He first uses the moral law to condemn them. This is the pedagogical use of the law. The law and the gospel of God are not contrary to one another, brothers and sisters. No, if the law is understood and used properly, it works together with the gospel to bring sinners to salvation through faith in the Messiah. The law delivers the bad news. The gospel delivers the good news. And in fact, we might say that the good news of the gospel cannot be understood apart from the bad news that the law brings. Are you with me on this? You yourself experienced this when you came to faith in Christ. At some moment, you became aware of the fact that you stood guilty before God, that you were a sinner. Well, what does that mean? What what it means to be a sinner is that you have transgressed God's moral law. God has said, you shall not commit adultery. This means also that we shall not lust in the heart. And then we as sinners say, I'm guilty of that law. And thought word indeed, perhaps, you know. I've I've sinned against God. The law says you shall not lie. And we remember that we have failed to tell the truth from time to time. We stand guilty before God, therefore. The law says you shall not steal. And we remember that we have taken things that do not belong to us, etc. We realize that we are guilty before God. And therefore we come to see the good news of the gospel as good news. We come to see why it is that we need a Savior. One who shed His blood to pay the penalty for sin. You cannot understand the gospel apart from the law. The law must be used in this pedagogical way if we are to be driven to Christ, to have faith in Him. Friends, uh, please hear me. If you do not have faith in Christ, you are in your sins. You are under God's wrath and curse. If you die apart from Christ, you will be judged. You will be cast into hell for all eternity. This is what the scriptures so clearly teach. This is what Christ himself taught. And what do I mean when I say that if you are a sinner, um, that that if you are a sinner not in Christ, I I, I mean, if you do not have faith in Christ, and if you are a sinner, you've missed God's mark. You failed to meet God's standard for righteousness. You've come short of it. You see, you, you stand guilty before Him and worthy of His judgment. And where is this standard found? You've missed the mark. You've come short of the standard. Where is this standard found? Answer, God's moral law. His law teaches us that we are to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. In particular, we are to worship and serve God alone in the way that He has prescribed, not with idols, with reverence in our hearts, honoring one day in seven as holy unto Him as a day for rest and worship. We must honor our father and mother. Indeed, we are to show honor to all people in a way that fits their relationship with us. Never are we to murder or to hate in the heart. Never are we to commit adultery or lust in the heart. Never are we to steal, lie, or covet. And if I were to ask you, have you kept this law, God's moral law, perfectly I wonder what you would say. I hope that you would acknowledge that you have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. And yes, what that does is it makes you a lawbreaker. It makes you a sinner. 
And what do the scriptures say about the consequence of sin? Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. Death, that is to say eternal death. Eternal separation from God. Eternal judgment. This is what our sins deserve. But the apostle continues in Romans 3.23 saying, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You had better be found in Christ. You had better be united to Him by faith and washed clean in His blood. I wonder if you can see how the law of God is used by the Spirit of God as a pedagogue to show men and women their sin and to drive them to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Can you see how this works? I trust that you've experienced this and I trust that you can see why this is important. When we preach the gospel, we also need to proclaim the law so that men and women might be convinced that they are indeed sinners in need of a Savior. In fact, in that Romans 6.23 passage that I just read, we do see how law and gospel are not contrary to one another, but how they sweetly comply, how they go together. For the wages of sin is death. There's the bad news. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is the good news. We must consider the bad news and the good news together if we are to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So what is the first use of the law that I've taught you? It is the civil use. Here we recognize that God uses His moral law to restrain evil in the world. How do Christians relate to this civil use of the law? How, how do we relate to it? How does it pertain to us? Well, we certainly benefit from it to the degree that evil is restrained and justice is upheld within our societies. This is how Christians relate to the civil use of the law. Aren't we blessed when God uses His moral law to restrain evil in the societies in which we live and to uphold justice within it? More than this, we may be used by God to restrain evil within the world as we bring clarity to matters of justice and morality in the societies in which we live. Those in Christ have the Scriptures. They have access to the moral law of God in writing. And those in Christ have the moral law written anew and afresh upon their hearts by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And so they ought to be able to speak with clarity to matters of justice and morality in society according to their giftedness and callings. You see, I'm here connecting the Christian life to these different uses of the moral law. How do we relate to the civil use of the moral law? Well, we are blessed when God restrains evil within the societies in which we live. Also, we can bring moral clarity to the societies in which we live because of our awareness of God's moral law, the clarity that we have concerning it. And what is the second use of the law that I've taught you? Again, it is the pedagogical use. Here we confess that God uses His moral law to condemn sinners and to convict them of sin so that they might see their sin and what it deserves and be drawn to Christ through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit calls them inwardly. Now I ask, how do Christians relate to this use of the law? Well, first of all, I think it is very important to say that Christians are not under the law in this pedagogical sense. Christians are not under the law in this pedagogical sense. Yes, the Spirit of God does use the law to convict the believer of remaining sin. We will come to this in just a moment. But the law does not condemn those in Christ 
in the way that it condemns those not in Christ. Do you see it? Picture, picture the schoolmaster again. Picture the pedagogue. What do they do when the student misbehaves? They, they condemn the student. They strike the student. This is what the law does for all who are not in Christ. When the law is held up before them, the sinner is condemned if not in Christ. When the law is held up before you, brothers and sisters, what does it do? If you are in Christ, what does the law do to you? It does not condemn you. It convicts you, though. And there is a difference. So Christians are not under the law in this sense. The, script, the, the law is no longer a pedagogue to us. Yes, the law teaches us. We will come to that. Yes, the law convicts us of sin. We will come to that. But Christians are not condemned by the law any longer. It convicts us, but does not condemn us. Those who have believed the gospel, those who have taken refuge in Christ by faith, have had their sins washed away. They are justified in God's sight. They've been made righteous. They've been adopted as sons and daughters. The wrath of God no longer hangs over them. And this is what the Apostle means when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There the Apostle says it, Explicitly, The law no longer functions as a pedagogue to those in Christ. The law no longer condemns us, for we have been washed in Him. For God has done, I continue quoting Paul now, what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's... This is good news, brothers and sisters. This is good news. The law no longer condemns us, for in Christ we have been set free. In Christ we've been washed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who, in, who are in Christ Jesus. The law, which once condemned us, condemns us no longer, for the blood of Christ has washed away our sins. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. These gifts and many others were given to us by the grace of God Almighty and received by faith in Christ alone. So Christians relate to the pedagogical use differently than non-Christians do. I think it might also need to be said that Christians can use the law in this way when doing evangelism. It's important for us to know the law in part so that we might proclaim the law to sinners, so that God might use the law in this way, along with the gospel, in order to draw men and women to faith in Christ. You know, Christians are sometimes confused by the way that Paul speaks about the law. Sometimes he says that Christians are no longer under the law. But in other places, he seems to say that the law is still very much important for the Christian life. Have you noticed this when reading Paul? Sometimes he seems to speak as if we are no longer under the law, and in other times he seems to say that the law is still very important to the Christian. And to some, this seems like a contradiction, but it is not. The key to understanding this is to be mindful of the different uses of the law. I think it is also important for us to be mindful of the distinctions between the moral law and the civil and ceremonial laws that God gave to Israel in the days of Moses. Question, are we who live now under the new covenant under 
the civil and ceremonial laws which God gave to Old Covenant Israel. We say no. They've been fulfilled by Christ and have been abrogated and taken away. Principles of general equity found within the civil law still apply to us, but those are simply the moral law there. So in that sense, we are not under the law. The civil laws given to Israel and the ceremonial laws given to Israel are not our laws. We're not under the law in that sense. Question, are we who live now under the new covenant under the law as a covenant of works so that eternal life may be obtained through the keeping of it? Answer, no. The covenant of works was broken by Adam. We are born into that covenant, but it is a broken covenant. Its curses remain, but life is not obtainable through that covenant anymore. This is why our first parents were cast out of the garden and the way to the tree of life was cut off. As Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So we are not under the law in this sense. We are not under the law as a covenant of works, as if we could obtain eternal life through law keeping. That way to eternal life has been shut off for a very long time, ever since Adam fell into sin, and we in Him. Question, are we who are united to Christ by faith and washed in His blood under the law in this pedagogical sense? Answer, no. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. A transition has taken place. The law no longer condemns us. But does this mean that the moral law of God is of no use to the believer? No, for there is another use of God's moral law, and that, and that is the normative use. And let us turn to that now. When we speak of the normative use of God's law, we are saying that the moral life of the believer is to be normed, that is to say, directed and shaped by God's moral law, which is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. So the moral law of God, which is unchanging, is our norm. It is our standard. We are directed by it. Our moral life is to be shaped by God's moral law. The moral law of God is still precious to those in Christ. I'll attempt to demonstrate this in two points. One, we know that in regeneration, the Spirit of God writes, or maybe we should say rewrites, the moral law of God on the hearts of His people. This is what that famous passage in Jeremiah 31 says will happen to all who are partakers of the new covenant. I'll quote Jeremiah now. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah is living under the old covenant. He's looking forward to the days when the new covenant comes, and he's contrasting the new covenant that will come with the old covenant. The new covenant that will be made in the future, he says, is not like the old one that was transacted um, first in the days of Abraham and then in the days of Moses. This was the covenant that the people 
of Israel broke. We'll come to this in just a moment. God writes His moral law on tablets of stone with His finger. Moses brings them down the mountain. And what does he find when he comes down the mountain except the people have already fallen into false worship and into idolatry? He drops the tablets of stone and what do they do? They, they break. Uh, this is a very ominous scene for it foreshadows what will happen in Israel over and over and over again. They will violate the terms of the covenant time and time again. You see, this was a covenant of works which Israel would break. And here, Jeremiah is speaking of a coming new covenant. He's saying, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and it's not going to be like the one I made with Israel in the days that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. This covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, quoting Jeremiah again. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So here we are told about... Uh, the, the, the characteristics of this coming new covenant. And I want you to notice two things about this text. First, when the Lord says He will write His law on the hearts of the new covenant people of God, He is clearly alluding to the same moral law which He wrote on stone for the old covenant people of God. God does not have two moral laws, brothers and sisters, but one. The law of Christ is the moral law of God written upon the heart. Two, Jeremiah 31 does not say that no one had the moral law written on their hearts under the Old Covenant. Are you with me here? Jeremiah 31 does not say that no one had the moral law of God written on their hearts under the Old Covenant. To think that is to miss the point. Certainly those who had true faith in Old Covenant times were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and had God's law written on their hearts. They had faith in the promised Messiah who was to come They were regenerated by the Spirit. Regeneration is a blessing of the new covenant which was earned by Christ, but it was communicated to them ahead of time through the promise of the gospel. King David is an example of this, perhaps the most famous one. You can read Psalm 119 and consider his love for God's law. Have you ever read that psalm? It's very long. And it's very repetitive. But in different ways, the psalmist communicates how much they love God's law. God's law is a delight to them. God's law is more precious than gold to them. God's law is sweeter than honey to them. God's law is cherished by them. This was true even of the saints, even of those who had true faith under the old covenant. Now, here is the unique thing about the new covenant. All who truly partake of the new covenant will be regenerated. All who are under the new covenant will have the law written, not on stone, but on their hearts. This is one of the biggest differences between the old and new covenants. Men and women were born into the old covenant by natural birth. Only some had true faith. Many did not. Some were regenerated by God's Spirit, but many were not under the old covenant. This is why the scriptures distinguish between the children of Abraham and the true children of Abraham. It's said in different ways, especially in the New Testament. But according to the scriptures, there was Israel and there was Israel, you know? There was Israel according to the flesh and there was Israel according to the spirit of promise, you see. 
And so within Israel, there was a true Israel. But this reality is not present under the new covenant. All who are members of the new covenant, all who are partakers of its blessings are regenerated. We come into the new covenant, brothers and sisters, not by natural birth, but through spiritual birth, supernatural birth, new birth. We come into the new covenant by faith, you see. And so all who are members of the new covenant, here is the point, all who are members of the new covenant have God's moral law written on their hearts. They have God's law in their hearts. That is the point of Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. God's moral law must matter to the Christian, brothers and sisters, for God has not merely written it on stone for you. He has written it on your heart. He has written it on your heart. So how do we know that God's moral law, the moral law contained within the Ten Commandments, is the norm or standard for the one in Christ? One, Jeremiah 31 says that the law will be written on the hearts of all of the new covenant people of God. Two, in the New Testament scriptures, we find that the moral code for the new covenant people of God is the same as the moral code of those who lived in Old Testament times. For example, Christ summarized the law of God in this way, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second commandment he mentions is this one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This is Christ saying this. I think many assume that Christ invented this, you know? They assume that this was kind of a new thing. Yeah, in the days of Moses, they had ten laws and even hundreds of laws added to those ten. But see, something has changed in the days of Christ. Now we only have two and the only thing that matters is love. I think many assume that, you know, that, that Christ introduced Something new for the new covenant of people of God. But they think this because they haven't read the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Christ is simply quoting the Old Testament here. He's simply reaching back into the Old Testament and quoting the Old Testament. And even in Old Testament times, these two laws which Christ brought front and center function to summarize the totality of the Ten Commandments, the first table and then the second. Christ did not make this up. In other words, he was quoting the Old Testament. And these two laws clearly summarize the two tables of the Ten Commandments. They are for us in New Testament times, New Covenant times. Consider also how Christ taught the true meaning of the Old Testament laws. He did not change them, but taught their true meaning. And consider the ways that Christ and the apostles appealed to the Old Covenant law to establish moral principles for the New Covenant people of God. Listen, for example, to Paul the Apostle in Romans 13, 8 and following. Owe no one anything, Paul says, to the church in Rome. He's speaking to New Covenant believers. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the what? The law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Does all of that sound familiar to you? It does. Uh, what is Paul doing? As he instructs the New Covenant Church how they are to live, he says, love one another, and then he quotes the second table of the moral law of God. 
contained within the Ten Commandments. Or consider Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. He wrote to children saying, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he quotes, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. So as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he addresses the children and he quotes the command, Honor your father and your mother. And consider the way that Paul identified the moral principles contained within the civil laws of Israel, that is, principles of general equity, and applied them to New Covenant church life. He wrote to Timothy, saying, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, he's quoting the Old Testament now, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves its wages. This is interesting. Paul is addressing a New Covenant issue. He's answering the question, should pastors who devote themselves to the ministry of the Word of God be paid? Should they be supported? He reaches back into the Old Covenant law, and he actually lays a hold of two civil laws, and he draws the moral principles that are at the core of them out of them and implies them to the New Covenant people of God. Paul commanded that elders who devote themselves to teaching the Scriptures be honored in two ways. They are to be honored with respect, and they are to be honored with financial compensation for their work. What did Paul base this on? The moral principle at the heart of the civil laws given to Israel, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So many more examples can be given. The point is really simple. God's moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, remains for the new covenant people of God. It is our standard. It is our norm. It is written for us, not on stone, as if we are to merely hang it on the wall and try with all of our strength to keep it. No, instead, it is written on our hearts by the Spirit. God, by His grace, has not only washed all of our sins away and imputed Christ's righteousness to us, He has also renewed us so that we might know and keep God's law from the heart. Why am I doing this, brothers and sisters? Why am I taking this hiatus from our study of the Ten Commandments to talk about the uses of God's moral law? I hope you can see why. I want for you, brothers and sisters, to love God's law. I want you to see it as more precious than gold. I want you to consider it sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb. I want you to have that perspective of God's law. You should memorize God's law. You should seek to obey it in the whole of life. You must realize that it is written on your heart by the Spirit by, in regeneration. It is not merely an external standard for you to hang on the wall and to try to keep, but rather it's an inward reality for you. The Lord has been gracious and kind to you. He has renewed you in Christ Jesus by the Spirit. You should love God's law and seek to keep it, but you must be careful not to misuse it. You must be careful not to misuse it. Do not try to earn God's love by law-keeping. The law is not a covenant of works to you. Do not feel condemned when God's law is read to you. For if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you, you see. You are no longer condemned by the law, for you have been set free in Christ. He has bore the wrath of God for you and in your place if you are in Him. 
But God's law is to norm your moral life. It is the standard. It is a light to our path so that we might know how we are to walk in this world. We must love God's law and we must use it properly. We must understand what it requires and what it forbids. Brothers and sisters, meditate upon God's law. Meditate upon it. Do you know what that means? It means you are to think deeply upon God's law. You are to hold it up as a mirror before your face. You are to ask the question, have I kept this law or is there any false way in me? What needs to change? What needs to be amended in my way of life so that I would be found living in obedience to this law? You see, hold it up as a mirror to your face so that you might examine yourself. Are you examining yourselves, your hearts, brothers and sisters? Are you? Are you slowing down enough in life? To reflect deeply upon the truths contained within God's word? Are you meditating upon God's law? Are you asking the Lord to help you, to strengthen you, so that you might live in the right way? So very rapidly, I've tried to present you with these three uses of God's law. And I've also tried to convince you that God's moral law is for the Christian in this normative sense. Our confession sums all of this up very nicely in chapter 19. You may read the entire chapter on your own. I want to read paragraphs 5 through 7 for you as we conclude. Second London Confession of Faith, chapter 19, paragraph 5. The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So if you have been taught that under the new covenant, and because of the gospel, the law has been wiped away, you have been lied to. We are not antinomians, brothers and sisters. We are not without law. Being in Christ and having believed in Christ based upon the gospel does not dissolve the law, but in fact, this obligation to keep God's moral law is strengthened in Christ. Why? Because this moral law, which is external to the unregenerate, it's internal for us, you see. God has freed us from The curse of sin. God has freed us from bondage to sin. The moral law of God is written on our hearts by regeneration. We of all people should be expected to keep God's moral law, you see, because of this work done within us. Paragraph 6. Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned, yet it is of great use to them as well as to others, and that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin, together with a clear sight of the need they have of Christ and of the perfection of His obedience. It is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions, in that it forbids sins, and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve, and what afflictions in this life they may expect for them, although freed from the curse and unalloyed rigor thereof. The promises of it likewise show them God's approbation or approval of obedience and what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof, though not as due to them by the law as a covenant of works, 
So is man's doing good and refraining from evil, for the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. Paragraph 7. Neither of the aforementioned uses of the law are contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. The Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. I think that is a fitting word to conclude upon. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God has subdued you. The Spirit of God has enabled you to freely and cheerfully obey God's law. Let us walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, teach us your law. Instill within us a true love for it. And help us, O Lord, to use your law in the right way. I pray for the saints here in this congregation that we would be people of the book, that we would look intently into your law, that we would hold it up before our faces to see the corruptions that remain within us. We pray that you would grant us true repentance, strengthen us so that we might live in obedience to you. Lord, show us how obedience to you is the good way, It is the pleasant way. It is the right way. It is good for us, and certainly it is to the glory of your name. Above all else, we are thankful for Christ, who lived in perfect obedience to the law of God, who kept the law for us, who suffered in our place. He was not a sinner, but we are. He died for us. He went into the grave, and he rose again in victory. We are thankful for him. In him, we have the hope of life everlasting. In him, we have the forgiveness of sin. Help us to be like Christ. Help us to live in obedience to you, O Lord. We pray that you would do this for the glory of your name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.